Hello? Take it out, Mendel, take it out. Don't spill it, it's gonna spill, be careful. Hello, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm in the middle of making Shabbos. I just remembered. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, senior writer Leah Leibovitz. to everyone. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Button. Hi. Today we bring you a special Mother's Day episode of Unorthodox. Our Jewish guest this week is Catherine Reitman, creator and star of the Netflix show Working Moms. And our Gentile of the week is Karen Malone Wright, who is the founder of The Not Mom, which is an online space for women who do not have children. They deserve some recognition on Mother's Day as well. I also chatted with Judith Rosenbaum, who is executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive, and I got her recommendation for a great Mother's Day gift. Plus, our producer Josh Cross brings us the story of an escape from Russia, a maternal escape. So many good things on the Mother's Day episode of Unorthodox. Stephanie Butnick, how are you as Mother's Day approaches? That seems like a very leading question. I'm good. I, you know, as... <laughs> this as, is his way of like... As my dad me. says, every day is Father's Day. Oh, I'm going to use that. But um, I'm good. I actually have a very funny update. So last week I told everyone the story about how I ran into this woman while I was in Miami and her mother knew my grandmother. Um, and a lot, lot, you know, there was like been some chatter in the Facebook group. People know who she is. There's a lot of like, oh, wait, I recognize that last name. And there's like a lot of back and forth. Anyway, I got another email from Diane herself, Diane Schillett. And she says, Stephanie, it's been fun getting emails from people who are telling me they heard my name and the story on Unorthodox. And she actually told me that her family has this really, really cool tzedakah initiative. Um, it's called Righteous Crowd. And it's basically like a micro lending platform for Jewish, um, for the Jewish community. And she's like, since you're telling, you know, since you're talking about me on your podcast without my permission, could you at least (laughs) let me tell you about this great thing? (laughs) So, yeah, it's RighteousCrowd.org. And I was like, yeah, of course, Diane, you you like would have kids who are like the menchiest and doing this amazing uh, project. Liel, anything going on in your life? Uh, yeah, you any know, updates I, for us? I, I was a little verklempt this week for for many reasons. First of all, I uh, I heard that um, the Met Gala that took place uh, just a few days after Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day, uh, the theme this year was camp, which I thought was really interesting. But then it <laughs> turned out it was a very different type of camp, like the Lady Gaga naked on the red carpet type not the that's, Ellie Wiesel kite. That's funny because I was like, oh, it's like summer camp. That was the where I went. <laughs> Wait, so it was the Susan Sontag yes. camp, basically? Yes, like, yes, yes, it I, was. But I, in, in support of even. the other camp, I wore my juicy sweatpants last night. In New York, like to have that as a theme is like so confusing. Like if I showed you photos of people who arrived at the Met Gala and people who you would see at the subway stop at 79th and Broadway, like I don't think you'll be able to tell the difference. It's like, oh, here's a person wrapped in tinfoil. Is this a celebrity coming to the Metropolitan Museum for the Bowl, or is this the guy outside the Victoria's Secret screaming about the Jews? Can I say something? Uh, can I can I be Liel for a moment and be the obnoxious guy for the week? <laughs> Anyone whose charity is the costume museum of the Met is a morally it's not a charity. Individual. It's a it's like no no no. But isn't this gala a fundraiser? I assume. For the museum, I mean, it's, it's essentially charity. it's essentially like the the gala celebrates the exhibit, right? So, like last year was goth, and like there's an exhibit there, or whatever year was goth. It's Never like forget. in a world, in a world in which there are hungry children, in which there is you know shootings in synagogues, in which there are rockets being fired. You think people should stop paying Gaza attention to and out of Gaza. What about food, though? Can we still pay attention to food? <laughs> no, Mark. Mark says no. Something, some extraordinary percentage of funding in America of charitable giving, like tax deductible giving in America goes to the arts. Now I love the arts, right? I believe that writing is an art. I consider us artists. I like my life is unthinkable without the arts. It is astonishing to me how much money people give to stuff like this when they're not giving or giving so much less to like making sure that people who don't have food can eat. I mean, last week I had dinner in New Haven with Alexander Rappaport who founded Masbia, this, you know, Haredi run soup kitchen in, in Brooklyn with several locations and they feed they feed Jews, they feed non-Jews, they make it beautiful and, and dignified like a restaurant so that people don't feel they're eating in, you know, in a, a soup kitchen, right? And you spend time with this guy and you think this is what God put us on earth for. And you think this is a fully realized human. This is someone who's making the most of this brief flickering window of time we have. And then you think there are people who dress up in tinfoil and meat on Fifth Avenue. And I, it's, it's not, the space I'm in today can't, can't well, you this. only you only say this because you haven't seen Anna Wintour's soup kitchen. That, 
It's very exclusive. <laughs> it also doesn't serve any food because none of these people eat. So there's that. <laughs> well, that, that's why they don't think to fund soup kitchens. All right. Enough of me. News of the Jews. Do, do we have any? Liel, Stephanie, any news of the Jews this so week? There's something we need to talk about. It is the Instagram retelling of the story of one girl uh, named Ava in the Holocaust. This sort of came out last week in time for Holocaust Remembrance Day and people went nuts. Basically, the idea was to say like, what if Instagram is around during the Holocaust? And I'm skeptical of, of shit like this, right? But I will say this is freaking crazy. Like this is, the execution of this is so well done. Um, the production value is so high that basically it's like a film. And so you watch this girl that you sort of become attached to and you see, you know, in the latest ones, she's like, they're getting boarded onto trains. And you're like, wait, I remember when you you introduced me to your grandma, you were living with them. And, you know, your dad was has a chemist store. And it's 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 it is remarkably gripping. Was people's objection to it? I mean, for, if you for you who have been following the debate around it, what, what was like the 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 objection? Well, the idea of like, what if a girl in the Holocaust had Instagram. People, I think, chafe at that a little bit. I mean, I did. I was just like, gross. Like, that's not what we need to be doing. But actually, once I looked, I mean, the objection is like, how dare you put the Holocaust on Instagram? You know, people get mad about this type of stuff. People are mad at us for saying Auschwitz. Except that if they came for the Jews again, it would be on Instagram, right? Like, I don't know. This this strikes me as fine. Yes. And I think that's sort of like the underlying darkness of it. Um, yeah. Could you imagine like being sent to the camps and having to read about it on Twitter? Except there are people who are sent to camps who are tweeting about it, like in this world today, right? Like that's actually the world we live in. So I don't know. I... I think people's problem is like seeing stuff about the Holocaust on Instagram, like the the me, the conflation of the That's medium right. with such what we imagine is this serious and awful thing. But what the the genius of this and look, I was very skeptical. The genius of this is that it actually manages to make a quite profound thing on Instagram, which is a platform you think of as like rainbows and butterflies. I'll tell you why I disagree. Uh, and and I've said a lot of things last episode that got a lot of people, a lot of our listeners on our Facebook group, very unhappy with Was it with about me. pocketbooks? It was about pocketbooks and about guns and about gender studies. Last week seems to really have been a peak week for me, but but let me try to outdo this. I, I, I don't agree. I think there's a fundamental difference between, you know, other art forms and other media and, and this. I think social media is profoundly, inherently, irredeemably frivolous. I do not think that it, it is capable of capturing any form of depth that is necessary to tell a story you like this. You are like a video game scholar. Video I mean, games are very different. But but you, which someone pointed out on right. Facebook after, as you make, right. made fun of gender studies. It's like, ha ha, video games. Right, no, idiot. Like a but, billion dollar but, industry that's the main medium that but, kids are interacting I would with. literally say the same thing about social media. Right, but I will say that social media, unlike video games, and we could go into all kinds of very boring theory the dialectical. Here, but doesn't doesn't have the same kind of story. To, it is... It is. It was designed. It was created for quick uh, ejaculations. It was created for quick, like, hey, Comic look book, at uh, me. Video uh, games it doesn't have. We're talking about Instagram and Facebook. I and, disagree. And this things. is actually. I'm watching a very compelling story play out on a small screen on Instagram, and it doesn't matter that it's not a Netflix film. Like, there's there's a way in which it transcended the medium. Yes, but it is a medium that you are accustomed to coming to for a very, uh, if I may, masturbatory purpose of being like, look at my vacation and then look at my friend's, you know, new ring and then look at my outfit. The way you have become accustomed to, it, this is not to say that the platform as a platform can't do more, but this is to say that the way you have become accustomed to dealing with a platform is this like absolutely kind of self-involved nonsensical, which is, which is my problem with, with these. It doesn't have a reference point. Which leads me to my other News of the Jews items. Uh, Facebook, beloved older sister and I believe owner, right? Do they own Instagram? Yep. No? Uh, has announced this week that, uh, so sorry, guys, but we're just going to keep on allowing Holocaust denial on our platform because why not? Well, Explain to that. be fair to them, to be fair, they didn't announce it exactly. They weren't proud of it, right? What happened was that a letter was leaked uh, and obtained by Jewish Insider in which Joel Kaplan, Facebook's vice president uh, of global public policy, wrote um, that the site uh, will take down any content that celebrates, defends, or attempts to justify the Holocaust. But, Kaplan writes, we do not remove lies or content that is inaccurate, whether it's denying the Holocaust, the Armenian massacre, or the fact that the Syrian government has killed hundreds of thousands of its own people, end quote. So, 
I mean, basically what he's saying is you can, you can't be pro Holocaust, but if you're super, super duper ignorant about the fact that it happened, uh, you can, you can be that you can be unbelievable. You can be criminally stupid. You just can't be, uh, criminal, I guess. Well, this harkens back to, to this interview uh, last year that Mark Zuckerberg gave in which he's like, oh yeah, some people may say the Holocaust didn't happen, but but I believe it's just like, you know, it's because they don't know better. It's like, again, this this like profound, willful ignorance of the fact that there are people out there who definitely just hate us. What should these platforms do? And remember, I'm not on any of them. I'm not on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. This is really purely an academic question for me. What kind of policing should they do? Because the problem is, and I think you both would agree, whatever like 23-year-old recent college grads you hire to be in your team of censors who go through and and strike stuff for being hate speech or not hate speech or in, inaccurate or whatever, they're going to make incredible numbers of mistakes. I suppose the law, like you could imagine a jurisprudence that would say that they have to strike stuff when they've been alerted that there's libel or slander or falsehoods or whatever, right? Like that, that, I mean, that's how libel law works is you, with celebrities, for example, is you have, there has to be an intentional malicious attempt to libel them. And if you can show, look, it was accidental, there's kind of wiggle room, right? So the fact that I, I look, I don't know. I'm just saying so like Joe one Schmo answer would be- saying- the Holocaust didn't happen on his Facebook as, feed. As the world's leading um, Jewish podcast, I'm sure that we have some listeners who uh, may be in law school right now as they listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, f- finishing L3 or whatever. Uh, right in. It's called Let 3L. 3L, not L3. <laughs> L3 is like a German <laughs> punk band. No, 3L is your is your uh, third son, right. Liel. Um uh, yeah, they can help us solve this. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Give us the legal regime that would solve this without cramping anyone's liberty style. Solve it. Solve this problem. Well, the us. best solution Take really is just get the fuck off Facebook right the fuck now. But join our Facebook group before you do it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hey, J. Crew, it's Josh Cross with a K here. In the course of producing this show, we get a lot of crazy stories. This one from Henya Lane basically explains why you never doubt a Jewish mother or grandmother. I'll let Henya tell you the rest. So, uh, my name is Henya Lane, and I was born in uh, Samarkand, Russia, when my parents were running away from the war. Uh, at the same time, my husband's family was running away also. They lived in Leningrad together with us, even though I didn't know him at that time because I was only a little neshama and shamayim. <laughs> and after the war in 1946, when I was born, we left Russia. We traveled to finally reach Paris. And from Paris, we finally came to the United States. America did not open their borders uh, until seven years. It took them seven years to decide that the Jewish people who were immigrants were all brilliant and bright and all contribute to society. And so we came to the United States of America in 1953. So from 1946 to 1953, we literally were wanderers like the Jews in the desert. We wandered and wandered. But okay, that's another story. My grandmother, her name is Sarah Katzenelenbogen. Everybody who came out of Russia knew her name perfectly because what she did was is she falsified passports to get the Jewish people to leave communist Russia. Everybody went into with religion. You were shot on the spot. You had a, a kangaroo court who said that you were counter-revolutionaries and they would kill you immediately. My grandmother was a very incredible lady. She was a fireball and she was able to secure passports. Now, how did she do that? So Russia, during the war, they made a pact with Poland that after the war, all the Polish people that ran away to Russia will be allowed to leave and go back to Poland. And all the Russians who left Russia to go to Poland will be permitted to come back to Russia. So what my grandmother did was she would buy off passports, like whatever the passport said, that's what it would be. The passport said a couple. So she told my uncle and my aunt, a brother and a sister, you are now a couple and this is your name. And that's how they were saved. Now she would pay for these passports. There was no way 
to uh, see if this is correct or not, because all the cities were bombed. So they had no way to verify any of these passports. So that's how once they had the passport, they were able to save so many lives. My grandmother secured a passport that said the following. A grandmother, father, a mother, and six children. So in this passport, my grandmother was told by somebody that there is a Hasheva lady. Hasheva lady means a very important woman who has to be taken out of Russia. And she was asked to go to Rebbe Sachanish Nirsen to get her to leave Russia. She was the wife of Reb Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. They called him Reb Levi Schneerson. And his sin was that he was a, a rabbi, that he taught about God and he taught about Jewish customs and laws. And so he was exiled to Alma'ata, which is Siberia, where he was exiled for five years and he didn't make it. He froze there. He had no food there. It was very tragic. He was a beautiful man. And his son was Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the next Chabad rabbi, the Lubavitcher rabbi that everybody knows about him. So at that point, they didn't know that he would be the next rabbi because his father-in-law had three daughters. and They didn't know which one would be the next rabbi. But they knew that she was the mother of one of the son-in-laws of the Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson. So they asked my grandmother that she should please go and get her a passport and get her out of Russia because the name Schneerson is a death threat in Russia. So my grandmother came to her house and she said, Rebetzin, um, I have a passport for you and I would like you to come with me. I'll take you to this train station and we're going to get you out of Russia. And the first thing the Rebetzin Khan has said to her is this, I hope I'm going out on my name because in my life I have never, ever told a lie and I don't expect to tell a lie again, ever. So my grandmother, like, she froze. She's like, how could I, if she goes on the name of and she's finished. They're never going to let her out. So she said to her, uh, Rebetzin, don't tell a lie, but don't tell the truth. Don't tell a lie, but please don't tell the truth. Don't say anything. And she put this big babushka, like a big, huge cursor, like a shawl on her. And she said to her, I'm going to put you on the train. Just sit down and go to sleep. And I'll take care of the rest. Please don't talk. Please. My grandmother, Sarah Katzenelbogen, went with her on the train. My grandmother, Sarah Katzenelbogen, she took compartment number one. That's like um, first class. And in the first class, they have like little tables. And you can play checkers, chess, you know, whatever you want on those tables. So she sat down by the table and she took out her dominoes. And three other men sat next to her. The rabbit, so she sat her down on the bench and told her, just close your eyes, please go to sleep. Meanwhile, she started to play um, dominoes. It's like a very big thing in Russia. And they got very into it. You know, they're playing, da, da, da. And the conductor comes in, tickets, tickets, tickets. And so my grandmother takes out her tickets. The three guys were playing with her, take out their tickets. And um, goes over to Rabbit Sahana and he goes, tickets, where's your tickets? So my grandmother jumps up. And she says, I have a ticket, I have a ticket. He says, no, I want her to give me a ticket. What's your name? And that, that, that would have been a disaster. First of all, because the passport didn't have her name, right? <laughs> and second of all, if she said her name, she would be dragged off the, the train and shot from the spot. So um, my grandmother jumped over and she says, what do you want from her? Look at her. She's an old lady. She just, she's sick and old and she's sleeping. Why would you want to wake her up? Just take my passport. Just take it. I have it right here. This is all the information. And the three guys that were playing, they jumped out of their seats and they said, leave us alone, Mr. Conductor. Don't you see we're in the middle of a game? And you're going to mix us all up. We're not going to know where we're up to. We're not going to know who the winner is. This is a play game. We're playing for money. We want Anyway. The guy got very nervous and he said, okay, and he left her alone. And how do we know the story? Because when Rebbe Sahana came to the United States of America, whenever my parents would come to New York, she would invite them for tea. And she was so sweet. She never forgot that we saved her life, that my grandmother actually saved her life, that she would serve my parents. She would not let my mother get up and serve. That's how grateful she was. So one day she said, I would like to tell you about your mother's. So he told my father about his mother, Sarah Katanambo. She said, I thought to myself, Sora is Gevoran Meshuga. She's crazy. Why is she playing with three shikurim? Because in Russia, you know, they didn't have religion, so they had vodka. That was their religion, to get drunk, vodka. She said, three drunkards, just sitting with three drunkards and playing? 
dominoes? What is she crazy? Why can't she just sit in the corner? And then I realized that she was smarter than all of us, that she really actually saved my life. From there, they came to Lvov, which is uh, somewhere in uh, Germany, the, the border. There were four borders, was Germany, uh, Russia, America, and Poland. And guess where everybody wanted to go? America. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. We are on the line with Karen Malone-Wright. She runs The Not Mom, an online resource for women who are not mothers, either by choice or by chance. She also organizes The Not Mom Summit, which is an international conference. Welcome, Karen. Thanks for having me. So will you tell us a little bit about The Not Mom? Uh, The Not Mom is six years old. It began as a blog diary, if you will, as I continued to try to find more women like myself who had dreamed of having children, but it life didn't work out that way. In 2015, we had our first Not Mom Summit, uh, drawing only about 125 women, but they represented five countries, including China and Iceland. Um, two years later, we had our second conference. The very first ticket sold was a woman in New Zealand. Um, And once again, we had women from five countries, five different countries than the first summit. So tell me what goes on in 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 a Not Mom Summit. At a Not Mom Summit, first of all, for two and a half days, your trust, you can believe that no one is going to come up to you and ask you have children, <laughs> which allows your shoulders to go down a bit when another woman whips out her cell phone to show you pictures, because those pictures may be of her dog or her garden, not her children. Um, the sessions focus on issues that are similar to women, whether they chose not to have children or whether life dealt them that hand. It See, might. Uh, that's that's what. Sorry to interrupt, but that was one of the most interesting things to me about the not mom is that we one almost tends to think of those as being radically different camps without a lot in common because people who uh, thought they'd always had children, wanted to have children, but life didn't work out that way. Uh, we think of as sort of pro-child to use simplistic language, like that, you know, they, they, they think warmly about the idea of procreating. And then people who are childless by choice or child-free, as some of them would say, are people who, you know, don't like the idea for themselves anyway of procreating. So what is the common ground that they have? Well, I I work very hard to show them their common ground because you're absolutely right. There are women who are in those two camps and they believe never the twain shall meet. But regardless of whether you are childless by choice or childless by chance, somewhere in your life, you have a family member or a good friend who's really in your business and will not stop telling you what you should do even though you've asked them very nicely to leave you alone. Um, Workplace issues are bubbling up, and I personally believe that will be the next major issue for this community, as bosses tend to say, well, you can work late because you don't have kids. We had breakout sessions on faith for women who had prayed to God for a child and didn't get that child or that prayer answered, and their relationship with God is a little uh, shaky. On the other side of that, the women who didn't want children but are hoping to go to religious services, regardless of the religion, often feel this is not for a place for me because mothers and children are so honored by either the religion itself or by the congregation. You know, it occurs to me that there are probably differences across um, ethnic groups, across racial and religious groups. I mean, being—I I know <clears throat> communities— 
where everyone's very down on procreation or they think that having more than two children is environmentally irresponsible and and people think that having zero or one is ethical and fabulous. Then at the other end, you know, certainly if you're coming out of, let's say, a Mormon community where the cultural norm is to have, you know, four or five or six children if you can, um, everyone's going to look down on you or, or pity you if you have zero or even just one. Do you find that at your summits or in your online communities, there are people who are kind of connecting across different uh, ethnic or religious or racial spaces saying, oh, it's different in my community from yours. You wouldn't understand what it's like. Well, what I found is that a woman's, well, a person's experience of childlessness is directly affected by where they live. It's a geographic thing. And I first uh-huh. re- realized that when I met a woman from New York City whose job, who was 26 and her job sent, relocated her to Salt Lake City. And suddenly, instead of being able to... Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Instead of being able to find, you know, childless adults everywhere she went, suddenly she couldn't find them anywhere. And the women her own age, as you say, already had three children, four children, and they thought she was, you know, very strange. So the the longer I've done this work, the more I find different communities can certainly change how you experience what you're going through. There's a way in which it does seem like different faith communities have a very obvious place for mothers and for children. Um, We see that even in the Jewish community where women without children sort of feel a little bit adrift. How do you address, I, I mean, I imagine there's similarities across religious groups, but also many differences. How do you, how does your community um, online address that? We have talked about Pope Francis saying that, you know, if you choose not to have children, you make Jesus cry. We've talked about... <laughs> That's like some serious guilt. Did Pope Francis say that? Uh, yeah, he did. That's really tactless of him. Um, well, uh, <laughs> um, he's not perfect. Nobody is. Um, but <laughs> Infallible, yes. Perfect, no. That's he right. did have a discussion with Jewish women who had been told by their rabbi that they they were letting you know, the faith down that they needed to have children. Um, you know, people expect, you know, we expect you to to have more children and raise them in the Jewish faith. We talked to uh, a couple of Jehovah Witnesses even who talked, you know, I mean, across religion, it's moms and babies who are, if not revered, certainly held up to a certain standard that makes women sort of tend to pull away. Well, in my experience, the ones I've talked to, makes them pull away and just decide I'm not going to go to services anymore. Um, The biggest discussion we've had has been Mother's Day and the entire month of May in terms of going to services and all the moms stand up and they're honored and all the kids are there. And you just feel like, you know, uh, you're not getting out of those services what you went there to get, if you will, because you're so focused on not feeling like you belong there. If we could change one thing in our society to be more receptive to and welcoming to uh, people who are not moms, what would that be? It would probably be not to, to start out with any assumptions. Don't assume that women without children hate kids. Don't assume that we, you know, spend absolutely no time thinking about the future. I've met several women very active in the environmental movement who have been told, well, why do you care what happens to the earth? You don't have kids. What? But I also know that the U.S. Census is reporting that there are more women right now who will never have children than have been since they started tracking them in the 70s. So this is growing certainly across America and in developed nations around the world. Going back to faith, countries that we have always assumed were very strongly Catholic, for example, like Italy and Ireland, both are reporting historic levels of women without children. So this is going to, some, something's got to change sooner or later um, to recognize that these women are out there, that these people are out there, and that their lives are full and they have legacies of a different type. Karen, uh, as you know, as we've told you, uh, when we have a non-Jew on the show, we always uh, invite her or him to ask us a question about Judaism that maybe has gone unanswered. Do you have a question for us? Um, I have Googled. It was Schindler's List, actually, that got me asking this, led me to this question. And the question is, why do Jewish mourners leave stones on tombstones on, on at gravesites? That's a 
very good question. Does any of us know the answer to that? The explanation I heard is is it it's sort of it's a commemoration of your return to the dust. It is it is uh, the kind of the final step of easing your transition into burial in the ground in which you're placed. And see, that's not the one I heard, which just shows, Karen, that you have asked us a really good question because there are multiple inconclusive answers. The one I've heard and is and I've heard this a bunch of times in different ways is that it kind of keeps the soul in the earth during the year before until the yard site, until the uh, the a year has passed, that you don't want the soul to completely depart and leave the mourners bereft until a year has gone by. And so the soul kind of weighs it down, which is, it strikes me profoundly unchristian. That's like super, right. <laughs> super not Christian, that the soul hangs out for a while on earth. Um, this, by the way, is also the reason why traditionally in very religious communities in Israel, they would put, even if the tombstone could wait an entire year, but they would put like the, uh, what do you call it? The cement. Uh-huh. On the grave immediately. So the soul. To so keep the, the soul yeah, in. So it doesn't escape. That's funny because that's so different from what we hear in all other like Jewish tradition and practice. That's like the idea of the soul. I mean, that doesn't really come up. But I always thought it was, I was always moved by the stark contrast of putting the stones on a on a gravestone as opposed to flowers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which to me felt deeply un-Jewish. Maybe just because it wasn't what we did. Well, flowers um, are deeply un-Jewish. Yeah, flowers are super good. Because flowers also die. That's what I want, thought. You don't want to replicate the pro- like you know, the life cycle of the deceased, right? You want to put something that is eternal because the deceased is now eternal. Karen, as you see, you could have us here forever now talking about this. Uh, Karen Malone Wright, thank you so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Your website is thenotmom.com. And uh, we encourage everyone, moms, not moms, dads, not dads, to, to go check it out because it's really interesting work that you're doing. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Guys, we have some live shows coming up. Hollis Hills, Queens, May 29th. Leon Nifak of the podcast Slow Burn, one of the biggest hit podcasts in the land, will be our Jew of the Week. Agenta will be Claire Malone of the 538 Politics Podcast. So much interesting stuff to talk about with them. May 29th in Queens. Go to bit.ly slash UO Live Queens. In Chicago, June 26th, Unorthodox will be live. Details to come, but we have nailed down Blair Braverman, the Jewish woman who finished the Iditarod dog sled race in Alaska as our Jew of the Week. So join us in Chicago, June 26th. Spread the word. Make it a night out. Have some dinner first, some drinks afterwards. Party with us. We still need more conversion stories. Dozens have come in, but really, can you ever have enough? Call us at 914-570-4869 and leave your conversion story in a minute or two or write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Hey guys, there's still time left to sign up for Thread, the storytelling extravaganza at Yale, June 10th, 11th, and 12th. Catherine Burns from The Moth will be there, Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, Sarah Stillman from The New Yorker, and much, much more. You'll get a special handshake or hug, the affection of your choice from me. If you come, hang with us there. June 10th, 11th, and 12th at Yale University. Go to thread.yale.edu. Tonight... That's tonight, Thursday night. Stephanie Butnick will be at the Jewish Museum talking to Danny Shapiro about Danny's memoir, Inheritance. Free tickets are yours at thejewishmuseum.org. Again, that is tonight. And May 30th, I will be at Hebrew College emceeing their storytelling gala. Go to hebrewcollege.edu. Hang with us, people. Joining us this week is a special guest. It's Dr. Judith Rosenbaum. She's the executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive online at jwa.org. Hi, Judith. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I've been wanting to have you on for some time because you guys helped us out with our Jewish American Princess uh, movie documentary. And um, it's been, you were really excellent participants in that. And we've been wanting to talk to you. That was super fun. That was really super fun. And actually, I want to take this moment to say to any listeners who have joined us in the past couple years, if you came after the JAP event, you have to go online and and look at the video, Can I Say JAP, about the term Jewish American princess, and go back and listen to that episode. But as I say, the Jewish Women's Archive was a a major underwriter and supporter of that. And we've been wanting to talk to Judith about the work that the JWA does. So let's start this way, Judith. Um, Tell us about the Jewish Women's Archive. And then also, I know you guys have a podcast, so I want to hear what that's about as well. So JWA is a digital archive, 
And we were created about 20 years ago in the early days of the internet to expand the Jewish story so that it includes a broader narrative of who the Jewish people are, what we've done, make sure that we're including the diverse perspectives and experiences of women who traditionally have basically been left out of the narrative. So if people go to JWA.org, what are they going to find? What should they look for there? So our site is really kind of overwhelming in a great way. There are so many different kinds of resources there from the more academic kinds of resources, like an encyclopedia and primary sources of all kinds, to resources that are geared towards teachers and students and educators, to, you know, a blog and a podcast and lots of different ways that we're trying to elevate Jewish women's voices and give people an entry point into Jewish history with a focus on women's experiences. And what about the podcast? Tell us about your podcast that you work on. So the podcast is one of my favorite projects. It's called Can We Talk? And basically, it's just another way for us to tell stories from both history and contemporary stories with a Jewish and gender lens. So that means everything from, you know, the history of Jewish women in Mahjong to women's health activism to women in Israeli politics to the cultural meanings of Jewish hair. (laughs) I'm still stuck on Jewish women in Mahjong. Is Mahjong, I keep hearing it's making a comeback. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. it's definitely making a comeback. That was, that's been one of our most popular episodes. That, and I would say we did an episode on uh, for the 30th anniversary of Dirty Dancing. That one was really popular. But Jewish Hair remains one of our most popular episodes. And in fact, it's one of the search terms that, it's, that our, we have both a podcast episode on Jewish Hair and a blog post from like more than 10 years ago on Jewish Hair that remains always one of the most visited pages on our site, which is really bizarre. But also <laughs> totally not bizarre. As someone with frizzy hair, I completely understand it. So if people want to get the podcast, they can get it on iTunes or Stitcher, or they can stream it from your website, right? Yes, anywhere. Radio Public also. It's called Can We Talk? Uh, And it's really a lot of fun. And we really try to tell a, a wide range of stories, but also try to bring in a historical perspective. So like, for example, we did a piece on the Women's March in 2017, and we went to the Women's March in Washington and reported from there, but also incorporated uh, the history of the first march on Washington in 1913 when women marched to protest Wilson's inauguration because he was an opponent of suffrage. And we talked about the complicated racial politics around that march as well and kind of wove that together. And are there, if, if, if people want to start teaching Jewish women's history in a high school class or in a Hebrew school class, I mean, in, in various different settings, I imagine there are resources on the site that'll be useful to all of them. Tons of resources, lesson plans, primary sources, lots of background information. There's a ton there. Also a lot of oral history resources. That's something we've done for a long time and actually something we have kind of renewed uh, resources for. We've actually just released a sort of soft launch uh, of a story collecting app that you can use on your phone. It has prompts for different kinds of interviews and you can record and upload to our site from there. Um, We're also particularly collecting stories. We're collecting stories of all kinds, but one of our particular collecting projects is on Jewish women's Me Too experiences. We have a project on archiving Me Too. Fabulous. Uh, And because it is around Mother's Day, uh, tell us about the special Mother's Day collection on your website. Yeah, so we have a collection called We Celebrate. It's not only for Mother's Day, but Mother's Day is a great time for people to use it. And basically, this is a way to um, honor a special woman in your life by adding a personal tribute about her to JWA. One of the questions we've often gotten from people is, you know, my mother wasn't someone who was famous, but she's really important and she has a story. And how can I get her into the archive? And um, our feeling has always been, yes, it's really important for us to capture the stories of everyday life. We don't want to replicate the problems of traditional history of only telling the stories of famous people. We want to make sure that we're capturing the stories of what we call sort of the ordinary, extraordinary people. Um, And so we thought for a long time, how can we build this in? And so we created this, this collection called We Celebrate, where you can purchase a tribute and personalize it and add it to this collection. And um, it's a really wonderful way to honor somebody special in your life for Mother's Day, for a birthday, for, you know, any kind of transition. People have done it for when someone retires or gets a new job or um, converts or, you know, any kind of meaningful moment has a bat mitzvah. Um, And for us, it's just a really nice way to kind of give you a chance to honor somebody, to celebrate them at a particular moment to express how much they mean to you. And also to say that their story is part of the larger story of Jewish women and deserves to be captured in that, in that context. Um, And it's been really fun to see what comes in there. And, you know, if you're thinking about what to get the woman who has everything, this is something that uh, is not going to be a tashka that collects dust on her shelf, but rather it'd be something that lives on in the Jewish Women's Archive. The Jewish Women's Archive fighting tashkas since... (laughs) 
1998. When were you founded? <laughs> 1996. <laughs> Fighting useless tchotchkes since 1996 and amplifying the voices and history of Jewish women. Uh, Judith Rosenbaum, executive director of the Jewish Women's Archive. The website is jwa.org. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. I'm so happy to be here. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks, Judith. Thank you. crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest is Catherine Reitman. She's an actress, comedian, producer, writer, and director. She is the creator and star of Working Moms, which is now bingeable on Netflix. Catherine, welcome. Thank you for having me. So this is a show that you created, pitched, sold, and star in, right? Will you tell us about it? Uh, correct. I became a mom about five and a half years ago. And um, my first Mother's Day... I was away from my son. Uh, he was about six weeks old. I didn't even know it, but I had postpartum depression at the time. I was shooting a movie, and these like comedian guys started teasing me about not being with my child on Mother's Day. And they, you know, they teased that, like, oh, maybe they should send a, a Mother's Day card to my nanny. Is the baby calling them the nanny mom yet? And I broke down crying. Um, and when I got back to my hotel room, and I was like, what am I doing? This is insane. My husband was like, you got to write this. There's something here. You can't be the only one feeling this way. And so I started writing some scenes and we shot them and cut them together. And now we're, you know, looking at three seasons of a show called Working Mom. You posted on Instagram a picture that your son drew where it says, my mom went to L.A. for work. I miss her very much. Good news. She comes home tonight. And there's like actually a really cute picture of you. It's like a stick drawing with a palm tree. He's a very good artist. And I have very good, I have, I have nice ponytails. And he really focuses in his craftsmanship on my pony. So it, I'm very proud of him for his work. And not so proud of the guilt, I feel. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's so refreshing. I know that's sad that it's refreshing that you sort of are sharing this, this, this type of thing that, you know, it must be sad to see that. But you're also sort of exposing it and exposing sort of the, the, the tangled dance we're supposed to be doing as women. Totally. And I'm even more ashamed that he misses me so much. You know what I mean? Like when I first went back to work at like full time, I remember thinking my greatest fear was that my son was just going to fall in love with my nanny and I would be someone who was no longer as important. Like, yeah, I make an income and I can provide for him and I breastfed him as long as I could and we got a good thing going. We've got some inside jokes, but maybe I'm not his favorite person in the house. And so when I am with him, I'm like an overdrive trying to make sure there's a connection. 
And I've relaxed over the years a little bit. But when I get a note like that, where it says, I'm sad because I miss my mother, I'm oddly, I'm guilty. I feel terrible. But I'm also like strangely like 40% happy because I'm like, oh, I still matter to him. He misses me. I mean, how selfish and screwed up is that? No, but it's kind of right. You're like, yeah, he loves me. He's obsessed with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I need, he needs to be obsessed with me or I'm going to be really depressed. So the show is in season three in Canada. It's on CBC, but we are getting the first season on Netflix now. And I encourage all of our listeners to watch it. But will you tell us a little bit about the, the four main characters, the four main moms in the show? Uh, totally. So it's uh, Kate and Frankie and Jenny. Uh, they're actually all based off of uh, flawed aspects of myself as a mother. Kate represents my ambition to the point of flaw. Uh, Anne is my anger, Frankie is my fear, and Jenny is my vanity. Uh, and these are all elements I felt I had to suppress when I became a mom. You know, like, it, like it's not new to say that mothers are supposed to be selfless, or at least appear as such. And that's not who I am. It's never who I've been. Um, and so when I became a mom, I started feeling like, God, that ambition doesn't seem to be going away. My anger seems to be growing because it's, it's an impossible situation. My fear has never been as high because now I not only have to worry about what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen to my children, which could be a Jewish quality or just a universal mother quality. Um, and then finally, my vanity. You know, your body takes a beating, your face takes a beating, your spirit takes a beating when you have a kid. And I thought, do I still have what it takes? Am I still sexy and cute? Am I interesting? Have I lost my sparkle? Did I put it all into this being because he's pretty damn cute? Um, so all these things sort of come to a boil for me. Um, and I created these four women characters to sort of flesh that out more thoroughly and, and, and show the different aspects of it. So you have an all-female writer's room and a largely female production team. I actually hate to ask this question because I know everyone must ask, but like, is that amazing? Is that great? Do you love it? I do love it. Um, to clarify, season one and two were all-female writer's room. Season three, I let in a few men. I know. Um, our crew, our 69% of our department heads are female, which is kind of unheard of. And it's been wonderful. You know, it's, look, I grew up going to exclusively male sets where females sort of played wardrobe, hair, makeup, but not a lot of other departments. And so being able to sort of, especially season one, being able to go to a female's writer's room where I was fully pregnant when we were in the writer's room, I had a, a tiny little baby when we shot that first season. Being surrounded by a tribe of women who were incredibly understanding of that, but also like this wasn't some group where we joined every day at 7 a.m. to cry all day. It was incredibly productive. Um, some of the most productive days I've ever had on set has been on the show with a largely female crew. Uh, some of the funniest scripts I've ever read have been with an all-female writer's room. So I, I vouch for it. I, I've, I have I've not made a sacrifice in doing I'm sure you've heard a lot from women about the show, uh, from mothers. I'm, I'm curious to know what you hear from dads about the show. So funnily enough, our audience is actually about 50-50. I think we're like 48% male. I got guys coming up to me all the time, what parents are not, fathers are not, uh, saying that they connect with the show. It's really about people going through an identity crisis, right? Modern, funny, flawed people hitting that age where all of a sudden we're supposed to appear to have more and not fitting it naturally. And that's sort of the universal concept. I love that. Well, I just want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you. Happy Mother's Well, happy Mother's Day to your mother. Oh, thank you. I, I want you to feel like guilt-free and happy and proud because um, this show is amazing and you should be, be really, really happy. You're going to make me cry. That's such an extraordinary thing to wish somebody. I wish the same thing for you. Thank you. Without the show. <laughs> I mean, for the podcast. Thank you. Um, so our listeners should check out Working Moms. It is on Netflix. And our lucky Canadian listeners probably know all about it because they've been watching it for three seasons now. Catherine Reitman, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day, guys. summer, Liel was an honorary grand marshal at the Celebrate Israel Parade, and I went to see, and he, like, got a sash and had a, someone holding a sign 
that said his name. And I was like, I want in. You're like, a sash? I was like, I see the attention he's getting and adoration, and I would like me some of that. So I'm glad to say that this year, Liel and I will both be honorary grand marshals at the Celebrate Israel Parade on Sunday, June 2nd. We'll be seeing more about this, but June 2nd, uh, the Celebrate Israel Parade uh, down Fifth Avenue, Stephanie and I will be there in person, besashed uh, and bemused. And we would love for you to come join us, march with us, high five us, uh, shout obscenities at us. Uh, we will say more in future episodes, but mark your calendars. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? little bit of listener feedback. Um, this one, a little bit, um, difficult. This is a, this is a, let me give you a trigger warning. This is some anti-unorthodox stuff going on here. Dear Unorthodox, I'm sorry to tell you guys, but I had to unsubscribe from your podcast. I was excited to hear the last post-Passover episode, but I had to stop listening after a few minutes and decided to unsubscribe. Hearing the words, every Jew should have a gun, this is when we were talking about the San Diego shooting, is so absurd, I can't even listen to it. We need more security in our synagogues? Of course. Armed and trained guards? Possibly. But citizens should not have guns. That is one of the diseases of this country. I'm Israeli, mind you. In Israel, as you know, only authorized and trained people have guns. Not everyone. Not every Jew. I'm sorry you are voicing such awful opinions in your podcast. I wish you success and better judgment in the future. Yours, Nico Turkenitz. You know what a real disease so Nico- of this country is, Mark? <laughs> Not not being able to listen to an opinion you disagree with without unsubscribing from a podcast you love. That's that's my two cents. Uh, among the the many riffs that we return to that uh, listeners we we thought had made their peace with, but but not this one. Here's a fellow named Jonathan Lehrer in the Facebook group. He writes, at the Chicago area Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony today, I sat among survivors, their children, and third and fourth generation survivors. Gut-wrenching stories and lots of tears. Then I came home and listened to last week's Unorthodox podcast, and you guys are making Holocaust jokes, which you do occasionally. You were joking about the meaning of the word camp. We were talking about how somebody was in the camps with uh, with so-and-so's ancestors, and I said, not Camp Ramah, you mean the other, the other camp. So this was one I was actually responsible for. I beg you to stop with the Holocaust jokes. Please, your podcast brings tremendous value to the Jewish community and our friends. What possible value is derived from joking about the Holocaust? There are zillions of Jewish topics to lampoon, can't you take the Holocaust off the list? Okay. No. Nah. No, we can't. First of all, nah. first of all, last week, we literally were talking about a woman who said that her mother was in the camps with my grandmother. That is not a joke about the Holocaust. Like, we, I feel so, so, so strongly about this. Like, we cannot stop talking about the Holocaust on this show. And I'm like, we are so obsessed with it and so not reverential about it because that's the wrong way to be. But I mean, the, I like, when Holocaust Remembrance Day happens, I'm like, great. Literally every day of my life, a tablet at on this podcast right, right. in my life. And in your family, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Like, Holocaust Remembrance don't Day. you don't get to tell me how I can deal with that. And 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 extrapolating from that, this is how we deal, right? Like, right. what are we not going to talk about the Holocaust? Because we have to be like, it's this is just so deeply offensive to me. And so, Mark, in honor well, in honor of my grandfather's family, may I tell the two of you a joke? Yeah, please. So, Ellie Wiesel. <laughs> <laughs> weren't you just weren't you just craving some good Ellie Wiesel jokes? Drink totally. So Ellie, right? It's a drinking game. So Ellie Wiesel uh, passes away and goes to heaven, right? And and he meets God, and God looks at him and says, "Ellie Wiesel, I would like for you to tell me the funniest Holocaust joke you know." So Ellie Wiesel thinks and thinks and thinks and tells God the funniest Holocaust joke he knows, and God doesn't even smile, like not even a grin. So Elie Wiesel tells God another Holocaust joke. Nothing. So Elie Wiesel tells God a third Holocaust joke. God doesn't even flinch. So Elie Wiesel just shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, guess you had to be there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. So to our listeners, you're welcome. <laughs> what's funny is that works on two levels. Like when I first hear that joke, I think like, oh, Ellie Wiesel's making the point like, hey, I was there, man. Yeah. But then, of course, it plays on the idea of where was God in the Holocaust, that he wasn't there, which is probably where smart there you people have it. go. And, and that, second and that friends, is why we need Holocaust jokes to help us also, grapple with serious Also, we're not making topics. fun of, of victims. Like, there's a, like, we make fun of Nazis. We make fun of Hitler. The, we don't make, you don't, like, make, I mean, you don't punch down at Holocaust. I mean, this is just ridiculous. It's such a misread of what we do. 
Yeah. But, you know, I want to say this, though. I was thinking about this as I'm completely enmeshed in all this reporting I'm doing for this book on Pittsburgh. And I was thinking, like, should there be tree of life humor? And then I thought, well, no, but that was six months ago. And first of all, I know for a fact that people who lived through it are already using gallows humor to deal with it. And I certainly think that there will be continual, continued use of gallows humor and more of it in the years to come. And also, that was six months ago. You know, so it's like, I mean, people were telling Holocaust jokes in the camps. That's the thing is there's, there's actually a, a collection of, of jokes that people were telling in Nazi Germany. And not only that, Jews you know, were telling. look, it, it, humor is such a fundamental survival mechanism for the Jews. Like when the Jews leave Egypt, like literally they haven't even been gone like a week. And already some of them are saying to God, um, what, there were not enough graves in Egypt? Like they're already doing this kind of like ironic shtick in the desert. Like this is how we cope, man. We're not, yeah. uh, there's nothing we can't laugh about. I also think like, just to be clear, we're never mocking victims in any situation. And I know that people don't like to hear it. And, you know, we love them and we hope they keep listening. Yep. Stay, stay with us, Jonathan. Some mazel tovs. Do we have any? Stephanie, who do we have? I finally met an Orthodox listener and my internet friend, Olive Garcia. She um, came, I think she first started listening to us around the time of our show in D.C. a few years back. And she came to the tablet office on Friday and brought me pastrami smoked salmon from the food distributor she works for. Oh, my God. uh, Yeah. And it was like, (laughs) this is the best. This is love. Yeah. I was like, this is an honor. I also want to shout out. (laughs) I also want to shout out my girl, Irene Pappas. She was in town for the weekend and having listened to Gretchen Rubin talking about like accountability partners in helping you clean out your, your stuff. She basically spent the entire weekend helping me condo my closet. And re-put, put everything back in there in an organized way. And I was like, that's I that's think you love. mean Ruben your closet. She Ruben my closet. closet, yeah. So does the cat spark joy? Does he get <laughs> the cat stayed. Yeah. Ruben in your closet is just like putting like a lot of pastrami in your closet, I feel like. <laughs> right. One of our listeners actually wrote that, you know, she told her husband they were going to go see the Rubens. And he was like, that's amazing. And then they went to a museum. And he's like, wait, what's that? She's like, there's a, a, a Ruben exhibit. And he was like, oh, no, I thought we were going to eat Rubens. He's like, I thought we were going to the deli. <laughs> I love smart that. Man. We're going to see the Rubens yeah. as the like, we're going to see them behind the glass case and, of the deli. And then we're going to eat them. <laughs> My Mazel Tov is also to one of our listeners. This one is to the wonderful Tammy Caldwell, who wrote in to say that she used to listen to us a lot because she had the sort of job where she had the time to listen during the day. Uh, and sadly, she lost that job and now thankfully has a new job, but one that keeps her schedule uh, a bit tighter. So Tammy, first of all, no, you know, we know, we know the stress of, of, you know, being in between uh, employments and, and kind of having to, to hustle that way. And we wish you all the best and just know that we love you. And whenever you're ready to listen, we're there for you always. Isn't that some sort of human rights violation though, for a, a workplace to not allow its workers or to, or to have so much work that its workers can't listen to important podcasts? To an orthodox? I think there's a word yeah. for that, Mark. Anti-Semitism? It's anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, to combat that anti-Semitism, uh, we need my mazel tovs. Uh, the first is to our producer extraordinaire, Josh Yehoshua Bencion Leibovich <laughs> Halel Cross. Josh Cross is having a birthday uh, this Friday, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow as you listen to this. So Josh, he's turning... Uh, how old is Josh turning? I don't even know how old Josh. Josh is timeless. 42. 42 years old. Josh turning 42 years old. Happy birthday to him. You could, why don't you email him your birthday wishes at jcross with a K at tabletman.com. And have an, an apuas in his uh, in his honor. That's right. Uh, and then also a mazel tov to Anna Kaplan, who recently founded Honey Cake, which is a new Jewish magazine for young children. It's a really neat, neat project. It's intended to help families cultivate a rich Jewish educational environment at home. You can learn more about the magazine at honeycakemagazine.com. And they're doing a Kickstarter campaign. So if you're looking for more uh, enriching, beautifully designed, literarily highfalutin materials for your Jewish children and family rearing, go to honeycakemagazine.com and a big mazel tov to Anna Kaplan with a C. I shall subscribe right now. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group with thousands of other listeners. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman-Ader and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. The music in the segment with Henya Lane is by the Underscore Orchestra. Check them out. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Scott Aaron of the Jewish United Fund in Metropolitan Chicago. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which just entered the Democratic race for president. Shalom, friends. Wait, it's Josh again, breaking into this episode to add one more Mazel Tov. A few weeks ago, I got home from vacation with my family to find a very sick dog abandoned outside our apartment building. It was the middle of the night, but I managed to find a wonderful local woman, Joanna Metting, who's a dog walker and could take him in temporarily while we got him checked out and ready to adopt. And just to prove we're a full-service podcast, we even had a listener adopt him. So my extra special Mazel Tov this week is to both Joanna and Jess Nock, who drove all the way in from Pittsburgh to Allentown, Pennsylvania to pick up the cutie. But I'm going to let Jess tell you the rest. Okay, so we just made it to Allentown and met Joanna's stepdad and picked up June, who is now going to be Jerry Orbark. I wanted to keep something that reflected his New Yorkishness and what I think is his Jewishness and was just also generally awesome. So we are snuggled into the car. He's doing pretty good so far. I think this is more trees than he's ever seen in his life. But so far, so good.